mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Robert? I'm feeling incredibly kind of meditative today i'm trying my best to stay calm in um the face of adversity because there has been a lot going on today but Mm -hmm. something that brings me comfort always obviously is art but in particular painting and today's guest her paintings just make me feel like i am bathed in colorful light and that i can get to this meditative place Mm -hmm. and somehow be transcendent or something you know like rise above everything and Mm -hmm. uh and i don't know i I always feel very peaceful when i see her work but also challenged in a way because there's the subject matter of her work at times can be very challenging but in in an amazing way like in a really productive kind of way that helps change society but i saw a show of hers in south london i think it was maybe 10 years ago uh maybe at Greengrassy Gallery. And I remember staying for a good 45 minutes just on my own in this beautiful big base there and sort of felt part of the paintings because there's something about the way she creates light and space and colour and you, you you really have a physical connection to these works. And I've wanted to meet her and I never have done, so I'm so happy that uh, this series has brought us together, at least over the phone. So, and I know you two have been chatting a lot and have become friends, so that's really mm-hmm. nice. So we'd like to welcome to Talk Art, Lisa Yaskavich. Hi. Hi, guys. How do we so find you it, right now? Well, as I said, I was um, in my woolly, woolly jumper. I'm I'm speaking British now. My woolly <laughs> jumper, and I'm in I'm in I'm in front of I'm um, I'm just you know trying to stay cozy. I had just done a yoga class, and I'm now feeling very relaxed and zen. So hopefully, you can reach into my mind and you know make me remember things in case you know just a new a new way of uh, looking at whatever would be of interest to you guys or to your audience i'm 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 hopefully going to uh be able to tell you things that i haven't said before i feel like i talk so much exclusive i I talk a lot there's a lot of essays that started with lisi scavish talks a lot and i was like i should probably (laughs) shut up (laughs) please don't shut up we want to celebrate your your conversational skills (laughs) <laughs> do you like do you like well, talking about your yeah. life and your work, Lisa? Is this something you're comfortable doing? Um, I won't say I'm uncomfortable doing it. I, you know, I feel like it. The responses that I have gotten 
from young people, I can actually say that they're people who come up to me and they are people who were born um, the year I was already having shows and stuff and they grew Mm -hmm. up looking at my work and it's um, rather mind boggling, but they talk about how important it was some of the things that I said in interviews and they Mm -hmm. found strength in it that, um, you know, some, someone might've been, you know, uh, living in a kind of a religious uptight environment and they were homosexual Mm -hmm. and they, their parents were mentally, I've heard many stories, mentally ill, and they wanted to find a way to, I think one, one young artist said that he read in an interview I did, it was probably one of the first ones I ever did, actually, I should have just stopped there, got it right. (laughs) Um, um, In my early catalog, it was an interview with Chuck Close, and it was, he, we were talking, and I said something about how I decided to turn all of that which I felt ashamed of as a weapon. I sort of weaponized shame Mm -hmm. in my early works. And this uh, young artist said it was like an aha moment that he could make work about his mother's mental illness and use it. Um, And it's, it's very, you know, it feels very collaborative when you can actually give people ideas because I've gotten lots of ideas from reading uh, writings of Gustin or lectures of Gustin. And I sort of, yeah. I, I, I learn a lot from the, uh, the biographies and autobiographies of artists. So why not, you know, if, if anything that helps, especially now. Yeah, yeah definitely. And, and th- there's a word that I've been thinking a lot about to do with your work, which is maybe a bit dramatic, but I was thinking about the word iconoclastic because I feel like there's some kind of like iconoclastic kind of transcendence or something. I can't really think mm. what the combination a rel- of words is. It's a religious is. painting. But it's like church kind of, paintings. Yeah. But, but, but kind of like breaking down, you know, stigmas within society and especially for women, but also like you say, for, for qu- qu- even people of colour or queer people. I, I feel like we have like a kind of joint solidarity or something in, on, on some level. Well, I mean, I think shame is one of the most powerful emotions that everyone has felt in the sense that um, puberty is is a big uh, moment of shame because your body is doing things and you're beginning to become sexual if you're lucky and you basically feel, um, you know, sometimes not in control of those things or the way I know that as a young female, one of the things I did with the early works of mine, the bad baby paintings, is that I remembered thinking, I, I decided to use this idea of taking shame, the shame that I felt about my work, in a sense, and how my work was being not received or received or whatever I was unable to capture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I knew that if I could take this idea of a person, if I could personify an image, uh, which is what the bad baby figures were, personifications of what it, of what the painting felt like. So in other mm-hmm. words, I, painting a prepubescent girl whose nipples were unable to be hidden. I I had that experience as a young girl that I wasn't excited about the fact that I couldn't get these things to disappear. I wasn't, I remember putting band-aids on my nipples. And then of course I humiliated myself because everybody was like, you know, look at Lacey's couch with the band-aids. I made myself, I I, I made it much more, I was much more of a bungler, you know, I was kind of a dork. Mm-hmm. And um, I just didn't want to, 
I wasn't ready. I mean, my body was ready. I wasn't ready. And you wasn't I ready to be that... sexualized. You wasn't ready for people, the gays, the male gays or any gays. <laughs> well, I would have, I would, I, I loved my gay male friends. I did go to the prom with a gay boy. So those gays I was good with, but, um, <laughs> no, the gay, G-A-Z-E. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know, yeah, I know yeah. the gay, I know. What are we talking about? When people ask me about the male gays, I go, love them. <laughs> um, I turned it around. I just made it all about that. Um, anyway, so yeah. yeah, so, so I basically thought that that was so powerful, um, uh, an experience, that hot shame of, not being able to control how you're being looked at. And I realized that scopophilia is something that occurs between a viewer and the viewed object as well. So that those paintings were about wanting to disappear but not being able to, and then the anger that finally came out. So that the humor, the anger, it was a big mishmash. I mean, people were really outraged by those paintings, which I rather enjoyed. Mm. Um, I had to learn to adapt to it, but I, I think that that, you know, game. The game was the games had begun. But what what was it that had got you there, and what, why did you feel ashamed to your previous work? Well, you know, I was making paintings that were um, very studentish, and um, I had an exhibition, and it was a little bit um, premature for me to have an exhibition because. You know, even when my ideas were not gelled, I was, um, I think I was 27 and I had my first exhibition mm. at a gallery called Pamela Auchincloss. I'm sure she wishes, you know, I would stop saying that, but it just happens to be the history. Um, and it was probably a very good exhibition, but I walked into the opening and I was shocked at how bad I thought the paintings were. Um, not bad, I just didn't feel connected to them. And mm. I went mm-hmm. up to my boyfriend, then who later became my husband, Matt Bay Levenstein. Um, we met in graduate school and actually John Kern was at the opening. He came because we were friends from graduate school. And mm-hmm. I said to both of them, I don't like this work at all. I have no idea what to do. And if it turns out, I actually went to a birthday party in Marfa. Friends of mine live in Marfa. And I went around, of course, lots of tours of Judd's things, all of his mm-hmm. stuff down there. I don't know if you've ever done that. And there was one house dedicated to his painting show that he had. And it was like these abstract paintings that Judd made. I don't know the year. I'm not a Judd expert, but he made these paintings and he was so horrified by them and basically became Judd because he reacted against these. They were perfectly good. I mean, another person making these paintings would have been happy. They're perfectly, I mean, you look at this. So basically he has a permanent installation. He bought back or held onto or whatever he did to get it. These works from an early show that he thought stunk. And I thought, wow, I have something in common with Donald Judd. Um, <laughs> have you, have so you, good. did all these works get sold though? Are they all out there in the world or have you managed to get things not, back or track them down? Well, a few of them sold um, and a few of them have been, you know, you know, I'm sure that it's not, you know, amazing to hear me say this, but I do think as I grow older, I realize that they are strong paintings in their own right. My mm. problem was that they were paintings that were not, did not show me to be who I could not move forward in my life with this imagery. They were um, uh, paintings of, of women's backs that were kind of surrealist and abstracted. Mm. And they were, they, they, rather than being about shame, 
they were internalizing the shame. They didn't weaponize the shame. Right. And I needed to do that. I needed yeah. to, I'm, I'm, I'm a fighter. These paintings were you not about to the claim fight. the shame as your own. Claim, that's right. And I, I wanted to, and also I needed to, you know, uh, just, and so when I made the first painting, um, I made this painting, it was called The Gifts. And um, I, I decided it was 1990, I don't know, whatever year Blue Velvet came out. And I watched a lot of movies at the time because I was kind of so lost about my work. So I went and saw lots of films, the film forum. And, mm-hmm. you know, we just saw lots and lots and lots of films. I actually thought I might quit painting and become a filmmaker because I That's believed so in the, I believed in what I was wanting to make my art about. I just mm. thought maybe painting was kind of um, thwarting it somehow that mm. I had this idea that painting was posh. Um, and my, <laughs> my talking, you, my talking English again. You're posh, talking, I love posh, it when you talk about English, English, I, I understand what you're saying. All a lot of, of that, a lot of that is rooted because you, you talk about it a lot in um, like a working, you come from working class family. I come from working class family and it's like this in some ways when you are elevated in artistically creatively you have like a, a working class guilt or a working class shame yes yes i and mean i think because i went to yale school of art and that was like woohoo you know our kid you know my mom had her car with a my kid goes to yale sticker on it and i was gonna <laughs> really? and I, I wanted my mom was so my parents were really excited my parents are very you know they were like very excited to have you know, you know, instead of having the loser artist, they had like, yeah, we have something to brag about here. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I quickly I remember my mom being very curious why after that exhibition, I went into a real funk, like a serious mm-hmm. funk. And I stopped talking and I was like reading. I was reading lots of books. Actually, one of the books I read during that period was Diane Arbus, the biography, the unauthorized biography. And I found it very interesting. I was reading lots of books about artists. And um, and I was very sullen. And my mom was very unsure about why. And um, my husband um, said, I remember. It's, and it's funny that you could go back because I had said you, you're in Margate. I said, what, my grandmother had a little beach house. It actually tilted sideways. If you drop something, you could never get it back. It ran under the refrigerator. <laughs> but it was free. But it was free to us. It was in, in Margate, New Jersey. And I remember oh. going down to this house in Margate, New Jersey, and sitting on the beach, very sullen, you know, underneath the umbrella. My mother asking Matt Faye, well, well, I don't understand. You know, she just had a big show in New York City in a gallery on Broadway. Why? What's the matter? And I was having an existential crisis. It's not that yeah. easy to explain that to your mother. You're having an existential All crisis. Right. That, that your success is something you feel. So what I was really working out, go back to what Russell said about the working class thing. When I was at Yale, for some reason, and I don't even know where it came from, I did feel this shame of my working class, um, uh, you know, uh, that Roots. I that I that I felt that I had to hide that that it was mm. all about mo- upper up, up, mo- that painting, and especially in that environment. I mean, I don't even think anybody said it. I think it was something that I. You know, it was my yes. some way in which I misunderstood everything. I don't think mm-hmm. anybody else was doing what I was doing. I was somehow I was, in, you know, um, at any rate, um, I had a lot of growing up to do. I was only 22 when I got into graduate school and I was probably part of the problem. I was very young. So what teachers said was, you know, I was kind of a so basically no one no one at Yale was actually feeling that way, except for me, I'm pretty sure. 
But mm. um, one of the things that they told me to do was to um, take take a humble approach that I didn't know what I was doing with these large, even though I was, they were very excited about my work when I get in, but Yale was like a bit like boot camp. Right. And they, you know, where they get up in your face and call you names and tell you, you know, do push-ups. And I, I was like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And did push-ups. And then of course I completely collapsed in my, you know, because when I, I found out later that, when I was at Yale, I um, was so down because I had taken the thing, the very thing that makes me want to do my work, which is that I was painting, you know, in some ways a manifestation of, of myself. I don't consider the images in my paintings, even way back then, me, but they were, mm. I painted a human form and it made mm. me want to paint. And this idea of doing something humble, which the advice was to paint a still life. And if you're any kind of a painter, you can make a great painting of that. Well, I found out through nearly complete collapse of wanting to paint at all, which I had twice, you know, once was at school and then another time towards the, when I then um, got out of school and had the show, which what they both have in common is pleasing an authority. Right. Because at Yale, I was trying to please an authority. Uh, and then when I had the show, I was like, oh, I'm so lucky to be having a show. I'm at that point I was 27. And it was like, you know, like, you know, whatever they say must be, this, this must be really good work. And then um, my inner, you know, bitch or whatever the hell it was came into that <laughs> opening and said, this work stinks, you know, but mm. um, it doesn't really stink. I look at the work and it doesn't stink at all. It's, 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 it's very solid work. It just wasn't my way forward. And, yeah, so and also, that, I guess that class... it's, your, it's your psychology, isn't it, behind how you made those works and actually who you, who you feel you are and, and that, that's what you yeah. want to show. Yeah. So it's right. like this very and, complex thing. Yeah. But I had to learn. I had to learn the hard way about giving up what was important, and also at Yale. And I took to just finish the thought about the class uh, warfare going on inside of me. You know, I made a joke. Maya Lin, the architect and um, monument builder and sculptor, uh, was at Yale in architecture when I was there, and uh, we would hang out at parties afterwards. She always thought it was very funny because I used to make this little limerick. I said, "Vulgar girl goes to Yale, gets some class." And, you know, she thought that was funny. Um, although that was a story I was telling back then, because also then I had to like smash, break it up and reinvent it, you know, because I was. Um, and then later I had to become interested and embrace the idea of what is vulgar and what is camp, um, because, you know, in a sense, camp and vulgar kind of have a kind of a, co a connection. And right. Yeah. And I think and I think that, you know, that's why. Um, a lot of the a lot of the misunderstandings about the work is it's not just because they're nudes. It was because of the kind of um, like kind of low attitude towards the 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 object or the. Um, I was always pushing the a class. I've always been pushing class buttons. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. Do you, and you and you said the same like the, the characters that are in your paintings. A lot of them are, are poor when you first started off. That's how you saw these girls as being they were poor and they had shame and then they were, but they were kind of trying to overcome that and be proud of what that was. Well, and it becomes a complicated thing because who, you know, yeah. like who, who really looks at art, who really buys art, you know, and it becomes this kind of weird, you know, um, mishmash of like, well, who are you pleasing? And then I, I just basically stopped trying to please anybody. And there's a period of time where, and I have that fabulous photograph. I don't know if you've saw it when I posted on Instagram of, Laurie Simmons and Tip Dunham bringing Lena 
and mm-hmm. Cyrus mm-hmm. Grace to my studio. And the paintings were lined up everywhere. Like nobody wanted to buy that work. And right, I was right, fine. Right. <laughs> I was fine with it. I mean, there are like, you know, like the transference portrait of my shrink, a uh, big blonde jerking off. All these paintings are now, you know, in important collections or mm. wherever. They've been in museum shows. But at the time, I couldn't give them away. I couldn't get somebody to put that on their wall. But what I love about you, Lisa, is the fact that through your Instagram, you're sharing your narrative, your story, which people are loving. I mean, I personally love because you're so yeah, um, honest with, with your past and saying, like, showing this studio scene, you've got these big paintings and you're feeling completely like no one supports you, no one wants to work. But that's part of your your a genesis and you're very open about that. And I love that anyone should look at your Instagram and see these stories. I, I mean, is, is that hard? I mean, it's probably great now because you're a big success, but... It, does it also bring any feelings back of um, like painful feelings? Well, my only concern is I don't want to, you know, play a little violin. Like I, I don't want like to dwell or kind of um, what do you say, like kind of um, play to an audience. And I'm not. I actually sometimes will just see these. Like I had a, a, a an assistant whose job was to scan all of my rejection files. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and 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 then and then I just was scrolling. I was actually lying in bed scrolling through my Dropbox and saw this thing, and it said rejections 1987, and <laughs> as opposed to 1989 or whatever, 1990 or 90. Wow, they were done to about a year, right? <laughs> there were many, many piles, and I or they were, we didn't even get into the grant rejections or any of the teaching. <laughs> The teaching rejections, I mean, it was just like, you know, a kind of a, I I was a, I had an industry of saving these rejection letters. Um, Why do you think you you saved them? um, It's on, I'm not sure. Maybe because, you know, I, I have, there's many times when I have no idea how I knew that something uh, was right. You know, it just, you know, my instincts have been good. It's one thing I've always should listen to my instincts because I just thought it was important to hang on to these things. And not because mm. I thought I'd be talking to you guys about it or sharing, no. but there was no Instagram. There were no iPhones. There was, mm. you know, fortunately, um, we probably got a lot more done back then because we didn't have these little things bugging us all day. But mm-hmm. the point is, this is something that I, it, it caught my funny bone, <laughs> these rejection mm. letters. Mm. And I just thought, oh, fuck it. I'll just put it up there. And it was like, really like it brought people to tears practically because the pain that the the suffering of being an artist and feeling rejected and not having an audience is extremely hard. And it's one of the hardest things. Um, And I sometimes think, you know, why did I know not to quit? Um, mm. Listen, I was just you know, going to ask of... you that because it's such an interesting thing that you didn't quit, and and the vo- the volume of rejection letters you have, and the fact that you continued is actually a really interesting thing in itself, like psychologically, but also like the, the, the solitary life I guess an artist has. Well, I mean, I, I hadn't every single. I mean, you know, when I I did get into Yale, I did. I was you know, the kid that graduated from art school as the painting with the painting prize, you know, Um, I did, you know, I had enough um, positives. Yeah. But some um, encouragement. Yeah. 
you know, and, and on a lark many years later, I spoke to this astrologer. It was actually the year I was about to have my first museum show at the ICA in Philadelphia. I'd never talked to an astrologer before. Somebody gifted it to me. And I remember this woman, whether you believe in this stuff or not, it was rather kind of funny and interesting because she said, oh, dear, you had a four planets going the wrong way for you for years. And I was like, I kind of felt like something was up. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, I, I'm happy to know her planets as a, you know, and she said, yeah. And I said, and she goes, and they turned around. No, she actually said like, what happened in your life? What does these period of years mean? And literally she dropped a number and it was the year that um, my work started to be shown more without fail. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't right, like right, I'd right. show and then the gallery would close or I'd show and the gallery would reject <laughs> me or I would show mm-hmm. and they would steal the money or I, would, you know, it's like I felt like I kept getting false starts over and over and over again so that it was 96. She said, January 96. What does that mean to you? I go, um, I got a grant for the first time, right. which was and I got um, I had a show. I had a catalog. That's the catalog I referred to at the interview. Um, and you know, I actually had a bank account that was, I remember the day I went to my bank and I had, I guess, Marianne Boski I was showing with at the time. She probably understood my, um, that was a really kind thing on her part. She really understood my um, economic um, vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. And um, she all of a sudden, like money appeared in my, it was like 30 grand or something appeared in my bank account. And I remember taking out 500 bucks and thought, well, let the bank try to get it off. I thought it was a mistake. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> You're like, I've got it out now. It's mine. You can't have it back. Yeah. Well, you can, it'll take you a few months to get this back, baby. You know, I yeah. remember it was called European American Bank. It's out of business now. In New York. Oh, so you in, didn't in realize York. it had come from the gallery. You just thought this no, had been the mistake. No, I went oh, to the, hel- we used to, we, people used to make fun of Matt and I, cause we would go to the ATM and we would take $10 out and people would make fun of us. And I was just like, you know, if we went out to dinner with people and then, you know, we would, you know, you'd all want to have a good laugh, but Matthew and I'd be like, oh, well, let's share a pasta dish and, you know, no appetizers and share a glass of wine. And then all of a sudden the bill comes and people were not aware, like, and Matthew and I would be like, well, gulp. And, you know, that's, mm-hmm. you know, half your rent. Mm-hmm. And um, so we had to be so careful and I'm so aware of the sting of poverty and the mm. sting of all of that stuff and how you making decisions between buying a tube of paint versus, you know, being able to eat something, you know? Yeah. I remember back in the days of Reagan, I was in art school. One of the things that always has been coming to mind is I remember Reagan saying during the recession, we got to tighten our belts. And I remember somebody said, and I don't know who it was. um, That's fine if you're fat, but if you tighten your belt and you're already thin, you're going to just disappear. And it's just like, you know, like when you're, when you're near the bone, and then you're in the bone, then you cut, then there's no bone left. And, you know, you have to, especially when you're an artist and you're trying to be positive and you're trying to stay. So, you know, one has to, I, one of the things that I would do is when something positive happened, I try to not take it for granted. I would make the very, very, very most of something positive. Like I'm an optimist, you know, maybe um, not like to a silly degree, but um, I, I really want it to thrive. I want it to succeed in life, even if it meant I didn't get to be, I never thought I would be who I am, be in, in the eyes of what you all just, you know, describe me as, is like a success. 
I was, my real goal was I wanted to teach, I thought I was going to, look, my, my dad drove a truck for Mrs. Smith's pies. He delivered pies. Before that, he delivered milk. My mother was a quote unquote homemaker. We, I had everything I wanted. If I wanted a Barbie at Christmas, I got a Barbie. I didn't know other people who had more than me. I knew people had less than me, but so I was fine. I didn't, you know, think about life as a, you know, like a scrap. I, I wasn't thinking scrap. I'm a scrapper. But, you know, I, but, but the thing was, I went to art school at Tyler School of Art, and I met these artists for the first time, professional artists. And I thought their life was awesome. They didn't have to like, get up in the middle of the night and deliver pies. They were like, they had studios in their garages and or above their garage. And they went to head off all summer. And they came in and they hung out with artists and they talked about art. I was like, man, I want to do that. That's amazing. So I kept trying to get a teaching job and I just couldn't get a damn leg in the door anywhere. Even with a master's degree from Yale, it was just impossible. I I got so many rejections and I was like, found out later, you're going to don't laugh too loud now, guys. This is so funny. I found out later I was using a word processor. I don't think this was the only reason, but I was using a word processor and um, I was sending out letters that said, I applying, not I am applying. I didn't catch that. So I I finally got a call from a guy named John Torriano at NYU. And um, because a friend of mine, another guy that I knew from Yale was teaching there, um, an artist named Jack Risley. And he said, you know, you should take a look at Lisa's application. She's really very good. And, um, but John said, uh, is she like foreign or something? Cause she doesn't speak <laughs> English very well. Like this name is kind of foreign. She said, mm. well, her husband's foreign. Can I see? And, and, and then Jack called me, he goes, Lisa, do you realize that you sent a letter out with like missing the second word in the sentence? <laughs> So I feel like, I feel like the fates kind of, I did, he did give me a job teaching watercolor and I have so many students. I just had a, I'm having a show now, which unfortunately it is closed to the public. Um, And Aspen and a young woman, yeah. And a young woman came up to me who's living in Aspen now. And she said, uh, I was in your water. I know she's, she's now what 40 something I was like you know like you see this woman I'm like huh there's a little girl that I taught watercolor to you know 25 years ago yeah but you know I I've got all kinds of students floating all around but mostly because there were these weird little things but I could not get the job that I truly had set out to get which was a full-time tenure track teaching position where I could sit there and critique work and just go to my studio at my house and make mm. paintings. I had no idea. So that, that I could not make heads or t- I could not get anywhere with. So I kept on signing up for this thing called the college art association bulletin. I don't, mm. I don't know if there is an equivalent in any other field, but it it's uh, basically they have a meeting every year and um, you get to be interviewed for teaching jobs. And so I, would read the um, requests in the bulletin and it would say a uh, significant exhibition record. And I'd say, hmm, maybe I should work on my exhibition record. Maybe that's why I'm not getting any interviews. And slowly but surely I started getting, you know, I put more energy into sort of, oh, maybe I'll just try to get into some group shows. And I was doing my work and all of a sudden that started to work out better. And I started to find the love in that way. And I just kept 
not getting any love in the teaching world. And so here I am. Now, if you tried <laughs> to get me to teach, I would not do it. You wouldn't do it now? I can, no, no. I consider what, I would, what I'm doing right now with you guys teaching. And this, right, is, right, right. this is it. This is it. And, you know, if I do the Instagram thing, I'm conscious. I think maybe what you're responding to, Russell, is I'm conscious of being a teacher. So being a teacher for me is, is an, being an example in some yeah, way. Yeah, or you can take it, you can take it or leave it. Yeah, but being yeah, a woman, yeah. being a woman artist, a younger woman artist, you know, I listened to your Joyce Pensado. Oh, my God. How heartbreaking is that? Right. Oh, Listening God, to her yeah. talk. Such an honor um, to be there. Yeah. What? Was, oh, gosh. Away, yeah. well, you know, I'm glad it took she's us not, like months and months afterwards to even yeah. recover from it. I know that sounds really dramatic, but there was something so intense about that experience of actually sitting with her. And we had to cut out quite a lot of bits where we're crying and stuff, you know, because it wasn't mm. all like. Uh, it wasn't very easy to do actually and um, I'm just so grateful we did it because it's such a wonderful sort of testimony did you do it at Memorial of... Sloan Kettering yeah at her hospital uh, bed yeah. yeah her hospital yeah yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah, and yeah. you know her but but one of the things that struck me is she's talking about how you know she you know there were no women to look to and then she she had was it Joan Mitchell or uh, who, yes. who was yep. it that she Joan Mitchell, yeah. Mitchell was a mentor and, yeah. and, and I I had you know, teachers who were female, a woman named Margot Margolis, but not, I think that was it. I say there was kind of one or maybe two, but, you know, they weren't, you know, necessarily, you know, my, my mentors for, you know, out there. And then I went to Yale and there were really no female mentors. So in order to do what I was doing, I had to sort of more or less, you know, figure it out from scratch. Mm -hmm. And also through rejection and going where the love is. Sometimes yeah. if you keep on being rejected, maybe it's not really meant for you. And you have to find, this was always important to me. And maybe this is part of like my, um, my goal was always to remain with grace. Mm. And how do you, I, I think one of the things I said in the Instagram post where I talked about those rejections, and I, this is the important part of the Instagram post, find out how not to be a bitter asshole. Mm -hmm. And what was your key to that? My key to that was not allowing myself to go there. <laughs> you, know, you just yeah. don't go there. You right. go anywhere else. You just that's a that's a choice you make, and you yeah, better. Yeah, yeah. And if you if you go there, that's uh, that that's like for me. Like I'm the kind of person I have a personality. If I get mad, I, I'm very careful about getting mad because I know I have to get unmad, and that's going to take. <laughs> four times longer than it took me. I, I, I get, <laughs> so I'm like, it's such a waste of energy to get mad. So like, I usually like, I become like diplomatic about, <laughs> about stuff because yeah. It's, yeah. I don't, it's like, it's too much energy to go into certain directions. Well, back yeah. then I recognized that, um, well, I could be honest with, you know, you in the audience and, and is it, you know, I think that I would find myself depressed and I mean, life had been depressing and I had, to look at that. And I became a very committed, I recently stopped, um, but 30 years of psychotherapy, very seriously, you know, I was broke, but I mm -hmm. figured out how to, you know, wrestle a nickel. I went into uh, therapy with a woman at NYU postdoctoral clinic, and she was getting her, you know, whatever certifications. And that's, um, they were, she was excellent then. And I stayed with her for 27 years. Um, wow. and she, she, I mean, I went from paying $5 a session 
And those were some brutal sessions where I was like, what the fuck do you know about my, you know, I was horrible to her. I was throwing shit at her. And she used to say to me, it's okay for you to throw shit at me, but while it's dripping off of me, can we talk about it? I mean, I like tore this woman a new asshole every time I went in there because I was in so much pain psychically and that I was twice a week and I would go in there and I, and I, and I'm not afraid to say this at this point in my life. Um, I would cry the entire session and then I'd come out of there and cry for another half an hour, 45 mm-hmm. minutes in the bathroom at the clinic. Cause at that time she was like in a clinic with like, you know, seriously mentally ill patients around me, you know, who were being treated. Like at that point, after she got out of NYU, she was at a hospital doing her residency. And then you would hear people screaming. And I was like, Oh my God, what's the matter with you? You scavenge. You're not mentally ill, but what, what, you know, what happened to you? Like, what is the matter? It was just like my, 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 my life was, it wasn't just about the present. And I, I really needed to sort of pull a lot of, um, I needed to really dust away lots and lots and lots of layers and get to the real core of who, who I was and what was motivating me. And it took years mm. and years and years and years. And was you able to I, do that while you were working at the same time? And did it affect your oh, yeah. painting journey? Did it change oh, yeah. the no, way? I, I have to say, I, I, I don't, there's a lot of people who would say I'll never go into therapy because if if it's it, listen to, this is me imitating somebody obviously I'm imitating a guy I'm imitating a man um, I will never go into therapy because I I need my pain to work with and yeah. I don't know how I knew this but way back in the day I was like oh there's no end to that shit mm-hmm. because right. if you once you're once you're once you work through you know your own limitations of what might be pain in you. There's just the fucking world of pain out there to empathize with. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like I learned that one of the most important things I ever did was to hone my emotional registrar and Mm. registrar register. Um, Mm. It's almost like a like a vocalist. You know, I really I mean, I guess as an actor, Russell, you 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 can only be as an actor that which you can um, empathize with in a way, right? Or maybe if you're a great actor, maybe if you're a great actor, you can do it without even going there. I don't know. But it, it, I would imagine you have to be able to be empathic towards whatever you're trying to play. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. Even if it's someone dark, you have to find a, a, a sensitivity and something about them that you like. If you're existing within that person, you have to. Yeah, you have to. You have to care. You have to care for yeah. the people that you're playing, even if they're it's evil. Too, it's too bad that this conversation is so trivial, isn't it? And so, like you know, ridiculously yeah, it's fluffy. light, light, very <laughs> it's fluffy really interview. Fluffy. Lisa Scavenge, <laughs> fluffy, 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 fluffy. I wish fluffy she would just, Lisa. I wish this girl would get serious over here and not and yeah. really tell us something about herself. But you know, it's it's we don't have to dwell on you know the the past or anything. I mean, we can talk no, about but whatever it, you. It affects art. It affects your art. That's what's uh, that's what it's all about. Living is about and culture and being artist is about taking your experience and telling your story. And this is your story through your experiences and that's exactly what we all do as creative people mom deserves better than a drugstore card this mother's day surprise her with a truly special personalized card from moonpig add your favorite photos a heartfelt message and we'll even mail it for you the same day all for just five dollars from mom to grandma we have something to celebrate every mom in your life every mom deserves a moonpig card Get 50% off your first card at moonpig.com. Mom. 
Moonpig.com. And something that really resonated with me and what you were saying is that idea of education. And also, I think therapy is the most responsible thing anyone can ever do for themselves, but also yes. for the world outside. And, you know, Russell and I have both done therapy over the years. And I think this podcast, funnily enough, one of the things we always talk to, you know, privately between us is how it's like educational and how our guests are almost like like guest lecturers or teachers to us. And, and then we get luckily to share that with people around the world. But it's like, I, I think education and therapy are both really important things and i'm really happy you brought them up because um you know it's just it's really responsible and I, I and i also think your art connects with so many people because you've really you know searched into all of your 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 emotional you know yeah, your psyche and angers and yes. psyche and that's why the work is so valid and so interesting mm. but but there's something i really wanted to speak to you about which is what about other artists so i heard that mike kelly was um at one point inspired you um and also you've mentioned like john curran laurie simmons carol dunham like all amazing artists in their own right very mm -hmm. strong voices um are other how was that like was there a camaraderie with with other artists in new york or yeah because you're part um, of a generation of artists like cecily brown and jenny savile i think you just said is like you're like all, all kind of part of the same generation right yeah well i i, I never knew mike unfortunately and clearly you know mike uh Pain obviously overtook him, yes, which is a tragedy. Um, yeah, totally. But uh, what he left behind was certainly um, amazing. Um, we, you know, Laurie and I met just in the most wonderful way in New York, which is she was going around looking at shows and she saw a show of mine. And apparently she brought Lena. I, one thing I always have to say is really funny is like Laurie was, when I met her, I was always like, she'd say, when are you going to have kids? And I was like, well, if I could have your kids, you know, or I could be like <laughs> sure to be like as amazing a parent as you. I mean, mm -hmm. I was right. I mean, that's an amazing family and amazing parents mm -hmm. and an amazing out, you know, like out, outcropping of, you know, like I was right. If I could have had those kids, I would be. But um, I'll just take credit for them from a, a, a side, you know, in the say that, you know, we, we I get to say that. Um, but I, I truly, um, you know, we, we, we just started a relationship just because work, of course, I knew her work yeah. and her generosity. Um, I She had a show at, in Chicago last year and I made sure to be there so I could toast her at the dinner because she um, one oh. of the here. Here's a good story, because, you know, when I. So then I had a show at a gallery called Elizabeth Corey with the bad babies and she went out of business owing me money and would not ever to this day admit that. But yes, I did not get, and I was very devastated because mm -hmm. I, you know, had really out of pocket everything. Yeah. And, um, you know, it hurt on multiple levels. You know, you feel this terrible betrayal of the whole mm -hmm. system. And, um, it was successful. It was a successful show in so many ways but I was back where I started from, bam, right back to square one. And I just couldn't believe it. And I decided there were a lot, all the other artists that were showing in that gallery. Um, one of them was Charles Long. He's a sculptor. I mean, everybody scrambled fast to get another gallery. And mm -hmm. I decided that I would just go back to the drawing board. And I, I was sort of already knew how to support my work. Um, with like little things here and there, teaching watercolor here and there or whatever I was mm -hmm. doing. Um, but I decided that I would just stay calm and go back to my studio and make work 
what do you want to make work about now that you have no audience again? Mm-hmm. And I made this painting called Rorschach Blot, and I remember it is the most obnoxious painting probably that I or anyone else has ever made. Um, <laughs> and um, art critic one time described it as uh, thir- uh, the scream for the third wave feminists. Um, and it's like wow. this woman who's like in a squat position with uh, a bald vagina and the vagina and the asshole or an exclamation point. And she has these like shoes on that her feet are swelling up. And I don't know. It's it's a really vulgar, crazy. Where is this painting in, in, now? Did someone buy it? Did someone buy it? It's, um, it was first purchased. Well, it's a it's it was a diptych with transference portrait of my shrink and her starch nightgown with my face and her hair, and they were a diptych mm-hmm. and they were bought by this wild man in Los Angeles, and then um, he got arrested for some something and then they went on the secondary market and then they got separated at birth. And several years ago, I had a show at the Rose art museum and the show was, it was called the brood and it was all about bringing paintings that had been separated at birth back together again. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then diptychs and triptychs and pairings and things like that. It was, it was kind of, um, I don't think most people understood that anyway, it ended up. And so the first time in New York that these paintings were put back together on a wall was at David's Werner gallery uh, last year. There was a show of um, it at, at his 20th street gallery of um, it was, it was a curated show and it was a, about fantastical art. That's it. It was like a hundred years of fantastic, a thousand years. I don't know, 500 years, but it was many like, you know, it was like incredible range of um, objects. And um, I really wanted those paintings in it because I thought, well, those are crazy, fantastical paintings. Right, right. And, but I remember people coming to my studio because then then I ended ended and entered a period where people were like, hey, and to go back to Laurie Simmons, I was starting to say this. What I toasted her to is like, so I had I was just floating. Nobody in New York would touch me. Usually art dealers like a virgin. And then once you've once you've been so soiled true. by another another yeah. art dealer yeah, yeah, <laughs> you're yeah. an art dealer right <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no but well, i mean i've I also think... i also have been a collector you know since i was 21 or something so i i've seen that cycle where you know you see somebody do a show they get dropped or the gallery closes and then they disappear for years you know yeah but, and then but suddenly they might that... come back but you, what you what you realize is that I think that it, it it you need to really it you don't have the the energy that comes with a new and exciting thing, and yeah, then you yeah. really have to prove yourself. And most people don't have the stamina. And no, then also, no. I think there's a suspicion. To be honest, to put it on the other side, I think there's a genuine suspicion of well, why did you get dropped? <laughs> you know, like mm. what's wrong with you? You you know, mm. your feet stink, or what's what's wrong? Your mm-hmm. work doesn't sell, or what's the problem? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. nobody nobody likes a, a second a second go round. But um, I guess anyway, that's for that, actors. If an agent drops an actor, then the actor yeah. has to look for another agency. I think people are a bit like. Oh, I also yeah, think what, in music as well because in I came yes, okay, music you get your record label people, drops you. Yeah. If you had a record deal and then you get dropped and your album never came out, which actually happened to me when I was really young, um, then people are like, but why didn't your album come out? You know, you failed before you've even had a chance. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, kind of a, that's a real it's a phenomenon. It's a really yeah. interesting phenomenon where it's like you, and then usually you're so young when this is happening. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, you're like, huh? I don't know how to deal with this. Mm. But... I'm sure there's a lot of your listeners are going to be thinking, oh, wait a minute, that's happening to me. Um, so never fail. What you got to do is just, you know, 
tighten tighten your grip and you know stay the course and you know uh you know and if i mean i truly believe if you're meant to do this you will and if you're not you're gonna find a way to give up and Mm. you should do it with grace and give up and just stop be it be a happy normal person you know whatever why (laughs) the hell would you want to be a an artist i mean this is like sucks paint on the side for god's sake you know i would i would paint on the side if i if if i had the nerve and go and do something else you know i I, sometimes i fantasize about that can i be a sunday painter but anyway Mm -hmm. so back i keep on not getting to the lori piece but she i was like just floating around and people would come to my studio and they'd be don't call me i'll call you i could name names but i'm not gonna um and (laughs) so they would come to my studio and they would leave i remember certain Art collectors coming in, being dragged in by this one wonderful woman who kept on thinking I was terrific and everybody should try to show me. And mm. nobody, the, uh, one woman I remember wouldn't take her coat off or take her hands out of her pocket. It would, She was using coronavirus <gasps> practices in my studio at the time. <laughs> when it was completely um, unnecessary. She, yeah. she didn't oh want to touch it. She stayed oh six God. feet away from me and the painting. Oh my God. And she, well, you're probably lucky. <laughs> oh absolutely absolutely i mean listen anyway but i was kind of like it would always be a little bit upsetting every time i'd have one of these experiences because you know you're like is it you know like i would always you know cheer my buck up buck up yes (laughs) but 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 one day i get a postcard i remember it was in the summer and the postcard had an image of laurie simmons work and some very sweet little handwriting i think it was printed hand printed and it said, Dear Lisa, I loved your show at Elizabeth Corey Gallery. And my daughter, Lena, and I, mind you, Lena's 10 years old now. We're not talking about, you know, you know copyright Lena Dunham. We're talking about <laughs> a child. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd always loved how seriously she, she took her children. You know, that's the beautiful, that's how you get great children, I think, is you take them seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so um, she, she said, you know, we really wondered what happened to you you disappeared we would love to know more about where you are and i and when i toasted her i said you know you're caring about a young artist you know i was toasting her last year reflecting i said is 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 really one of you know your your generosity and your work and 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 to the community i will never forget that i mean she tried very hard to get people to work with me and Mm. people were not still didn't want to work with me but as you say, I think you get lucky if you don't work with people until it's the right fit. You know, you got to yes. wait for the right fit. You got to believe that you're going to get the right fit. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew the work was really, really good. Mm-hmm. I used to do a little dance in my studio when I made those paintings, even though no one wanted them. I was like, these are these are important paintings because I'm smart enough to be able to run the historical, like sp- I spun all the numbers Art history, yeah. All the art history. And I was like, this is really new. And this is Mm -hmm. why people can't deal with this. Because it's like they feel like they're getting pied in the face, which is later made those paintings. But it's like (laughs) they're afraid to admit that blah, 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 you know, whatever. And I I ran it all. And I was like, these are really important paintings. Mm -hmm. Stay the course. Yeah. But you're quoted as saying you wanted, you had the desire, your desire was to create highly original images and objects that carried meaning. So you wanted to, the reason people were so struggling with it is because it was so fresh, because they hadn't seen it and they weren't be able to really fully contextualize it within art history. Well, that's the weird thing about our business is how I took it very seriously, this idea of the avant-garde. 
But then when you, f- you find out that in reality, what people want is the same goddamn flavor of, you know, people yes. are very, it's very hard for people to accept anything new, even mm-hmm. though they claim that's what they want. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. took that quite seriously. And yet, you know, the, the fun part for me has been some of my biggest fans are people who really hated my work at first right? and did not get it. And they, and they become obsessed. Then they say, it's like, you know, when you're a kid and you taste fish or coffee or something, you're like, Ugh. Yes. Olives. you know, and then, yes. and then, yeah. Or, or then you go, wait a minute. Like now I'm kind of hankering for it. And then you become yeah. crave. Then you have a problem because you're now you're addicted to it. And yes. I feel like, you know, some, some of that has been very gratifying to me. Yeah, and, you know, um, and I feel very good because I think it's not for everybody. And thank God, because I don't make enough work to share with everybody. Um, I don't make have enough you had some of these, make... Have you had some of these people from the rejection letters contact you with, in your life since rejection letters going like, oh, fuck, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. <laughs> or <laughs> come back to you with that. Um, let me think. Oh, no, um, <laughs> <laughs> they're probably too art bad. dealers. Art dealers, yeah, you know, they're a funny lot. You know, it's hard to be an art dealer for like even if you're doing well, it's hard to be an art dealer because you know all these artists' egos and you know I understand it's it's complicated and you know whatever you know it's like they did me a favor and I don't mean that like in a you know self congratulatory way, but there is one art dealer who. Uh, I'll, I'll decide whether or not to mention his name and, you know, in, in time, but it was mm. really great because he came to my studio and the only thing hanging was this Rorschach blot. So basically he comes in, there is a big yellow painting with a bald vagina, legs akimbo. Mm-hmm. And this guy who was also bald, I never made the connection. Maybe he thought I was making fun of him. I don't know. <laughs> and looked like a vagina. Came, yeah. <laughs> came to my studio, came to the studio because somebody forced him to. Right. And he looked at that painting and he said, you know what I show, don't you? Because he's showing a lot of conceptual art. And I said, yeah, but can we just be friends? And he said, you got it. And we shook hands. And ever since then, we've always been decent to each other. One thing I don't like about the art world is if when people make mistakes or let's say they sell your work or they made a mistake mm-hmm. and didn't buy your work or they, you know, this or that. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, what a bunch of weak ass pussies they run away from you i'm like come on be a human being yeah 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 Mm -hmm. just you know like one of the things about the moment we're going through is it's apparently a retrograde period for all of us and what 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 happens is you cannot proceed very well during a retrograde you know things are not going to go your way so you must Mm -hmm. feel you must use a retrograde period to go internally now that's one thing about all of that time of my life um I chose to go internally and to really dig in through therapy, through watching movies. I educated myself outside of school. I read, I read, I read, I researched, I went to the public library. I didn't know I was doing the right thing. It just, I was following my instinct about what to do. Um, But I think that one of the other things that I realized recently about um, a retrograde period is that you should make peace with people that maybe hold grudges against. And, you know, it's Mm. just like I've reached out to a couple of people that, you know, for whatever reason, um, I haven't talked to in a while because of some little thing and or maybe big thing and and reached out and said, I'm sending love to you and your family. And, you know, that's it. 
we're human beings. This is something, and I, one thing I don't like is, I mean, I did like that about that art dealer is that we always yeah. shake hands and say hello. Yeah. And it's, and even through whatever period it's, it's, it's just, it's cool, you know, be cool. And, mm-hmm. you know, don't, I don't know. I expect so much emotional maturity from people because I'm not always the most emotionally mature person. I get, I, I know I, I get turned around plenty, but it's something to, to strive towards, I would assume. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, to reach, reach a higher level of, of, of decency to, towards people that, you know, eh, well, like, think about it. You know, if somebody, you know, has slighted you in business, I mean, since we're talking about that, yeah. um, just let it go, you know, yeah. because we're all hurting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even when this particular moment is over and this isn't happening, it'd be nice to kind of be able to sort of just be a human being to each other and just say, "Hey, how you doing? I wish you luck. I'm I'm sorry it didn't work out." Definitely. You know, whatever. Make it mm-hmm. make it um, you know, but I think that, you know, how to um move forward as an artist, you know, it's funny, it's just like the idea of like how how to make art in this time, like sometimes like exactly. How is this changing your art? Is this affecting your ability to make art or changing your journey now again? I'm having trouble. I have to be honest. I'm having trouble focusing right. and I'm forcing myself to work. I feel like I'm trying not to let it feel like a fool's errand. Like, you right, know, like right. there's shit going on that is so painful. You know, there is no end of pain. And um, I feel mm. silly. I mean, often you go to your studio and you're doing what? Um, but what am I supposed to do? Like my sister is on the front line. She's a doctor. She has no protective gear. Um, oh, I'm terrified. Jesus. Yeah. She's not an emergency room doctor. She's a family practice doctor, but she's the people coming in coffin and you know, they're, you know, she's she has one mask. Yeah. Yeah, she yeah, has yeah. one mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it's and it's, actually, it's, it's, just... it's, 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 it's those family doctors. It's the same in the UK. They they're the ones who actually seem to be getting even less protection. And like one of my friends is a GP in England, and she um, actually got coronavirus and was at home for two weeks, two two or three weeks or something. You know, recovering from it, but mainly because they 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 are getting no protection. I mean, it's just and they're getting and they're such a hit a lot of, of these it. People, it's like they're getting you know, it's not they're, they're getting a, they a, a proper yeah, yeah proper hit of the virus, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Well, but I think like, that's the thing is like, when you have, you know, consciousness of, you know, my, my beloved sibling, potentially, you know, having exposure to, you know, as you, you know, say, we, we, we all have, you know, this, but, you know, it makes it hard to relax enough. I mean, to be able to really create for me, Mm. even on the best day, um, what I have learned that I do is I really, you know, it's a quote from Dustin. It's like um, he, he or some somebody quoted him and he said that, you know, you go to your studio and it's full of chatter. And then slowly but surely the chatter, the chattery people leave, you know, the news people go and then your teachers leave. And this, the, you know, it's it's all mental, obviously, you know, yes, your critics, leave. Yeah. Your, your critics must leave the room. um and then you know eventually you leave and it's just the painting and the spirit that paints you know your own ego leaves and and so i think like to be able to work i really feel like i do connect to some something and i feel this way more and more the older i get the less i know how to do anything 
And the more I rely on being able to have guidance, just like, tell me what to do. And, you know, without that clarity, without the ability to really hear the, you know, I know their inner voices. I like to pretend they're, I'm hearing voices from outer space, but it's like, I know that they're my inner voices. And, but to mm. be able to really connect to those voices, I have to be very, very quiet psychically. Mm. Do you it's listen? To, you don't to listen be... to music or anything. Then, what is your studio practice? How do you? Are you a nine to five, and do you have like radio on? And what do you eat? What do you drink? How do you sort of see your way through? Um, well, I don't believe in making any. I think one of the things that's always been really important to me is to, if you have the freedom of being an artist, you should explore that freedom. Like I have one of my friends from high school. We're not friends anymore. Um, because of the way she behaved during the AIDS crisis. That's a whole other story, because I had a friend who had AIDS, and she basically said, you know, God, abomination, blah, blah, blah. I put her out, put her oh, out of the door, out, out of my life. You're gone. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. so she became a military person. It was weird, right? So I have this one life. She has this life. She joined the military. She just couldn't believe that I have the freedom and then can actually live a life where I get to decide how much I want to work, how much I get to weigh. She was told how much to weigh. I said, oh, I, actually, I wish somebody would tell me what to weigh, to be honest with you, and then uh, make me weigh that. <laughs> but that would be like, you know, she had every facet of her life in Controlled. stone and, and she would yeah. get yelled at and, 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 you know, and had to follow the rules. She said, well, how do you know what to do? And I said, well, that's a good question. I said, you know, that's, that's called self-discipline. But I think part of the self-discipline, and I've learned this over the years, is to not be too disciplined because you're not a military person. And you get to, part of the fun is to get to say, I do this when I want to. And I have the inner resources to want to do it exactly the right amount. So to answer your question, mm-hmm. I often like listening to a radio station because I find that I get a little lost in playlists. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, because I like to work alone. I don't like having anyone around. I have trouble with the idea of any assistance. I've built up a wall and I only have them there one and a half days a week. And I love the days that they're not there. I mean, I feel like I've kind of gotten addicted to people helping me clean up, but nobody helps me make the work. Mm. Right. So, so, so when I get to, you don't like people watching you, do you? You're not, not into voyeurism of you while you're working. Oh, well, it depends on what work are you asking? You want to watch me? The series, the, the, the bedroom, the bedroom work. I'll be there, but I mean, but okay, your boys, studio, okay, you're not. Boys. <laughs> I, I, that's my, one of my favorite movies. I like to watch, you know uh-huh. what movie that is? Uh, being being there being there right um so so um chauncey gardner so when i when i work no i i absolutely must be alone i must it's like uh you know as i said not only at at my best not only am i alone i mean i'm not even there myself so Mm -hmm. but it's because i have to kind of cruise into the mood um i got i put on the this radio station which i like is wfuv it's kind of you know, an eclectic thing, and it kind of, I learn a lot listening to it, but when I'm really working, it just disappears. But what mm-hmm. helps me is that they're living people talking, so yeah. I don't feel like I'm in an echo chamber. I, I feel very helpful. Like, I could, I, like, I actually listened to your podcast with Lena when I was in my studio, but I was doing some tasks. I was, like, maybe scraping or doing something, and, um, and the reason why I know, you know, when I said to you the other day, I said, oh, that was a nice, long, juicy one. 
And I, because I realized like, cause I was doing something that took a long time. I don't remember what it was. And, um, but I feel like, you know, there's different levels of concentration where I can't, like, if I would listen to a book on tape, let's say, um, mm. I would forget, I would lose the book and that would be fine. I would stop listening. Right. Or I'd, in some ways you can dip the, in and out, can't you? Your, your concentration can waver through podcasts. Well, there's nothing important happening. Like, if you're going to listen to a podcast, what's best for me is to listen to it while I'm taking my long walk with my dog or something because it's very mm-hmm. relaxing. Your mind is... Yes you know, somewhere and you're in, you know, you're, you're educating yourself or taking the subway or something or driving a car. But I think, um, it's a journey. I like to use them as a journey thing or whatever, but I think, um, when I'm painting, I like this radio station because, you know, nothing that important is being said, you know, it just sort of, you know, there's a human being that's breathing somewhere on earth and that makes me feel a lot less lonely, Mm -hmm. but I get to be alone. And in terms of you know, hours, um, you know, I've never been, I will tell you what I'm not. And then, you know, I guess anything else is up for grabs. I've never been somebody who could work in the middle of the night. You know, there's artists right. thing where they're, they're up all night working. I've just, mm-hmm. I'm just not able to think well at that evening thing. I've never mm-hmm. been a crap. Cr- what do you call it? A crashing, you know, like I don't stay up 24 hours before a show making a painting. I know people right. who do, and they do amazing work. I'm like, yeah. they stay up for like three me. days, yeah, do well, the show and then they crash really out for a week. Yeah. 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 Some people I've thrive on it, they, don't they? Well, they do, you know, they do with tests when they're kids. I never did. I would know the work. I never studied for tests when I was a kid and I was in high school. Either I listened. And if I didn't listen, it was no use. I was going to fail. Uh, right. When I was in class, either you got my attention and I would listen to you and I literally memorized every single thing you said and then I would get an A or I was disinterested and studying wouldn't help. And so mm-hmm. I learned that, you know, I would get really uneven grades because mm-hmm. either I was interested or I was disinterested. My mom actually sat me down and said, if you want to get into an art school, you're going to have to get better grades or you're going to end up, you know, you know, whatever you better go to secretarial school or something. And I was just like, Ugh, okay, better start snapping into it. So I kind of started <laughs> to do a little better, but um, yeah, but, but I think that, but I think that, you know, in terms of um, the, the, the eating thing, it's just like, I, you know, try to just not do much of anything other than have a little bite either before I start or, you know, it's, it's, it's important not to feel sleepy. So I've learned yeah. to eat very, very, uh, you know, small amounts or, you know, just a salad or something. And just because otherwise too much blood rushes to my stomach and I feel like taking a nap. Uh Um, so, so it really is all about like my whole life is, is because I don't have children. I think I am, you know, unique. I, and I didn't, I won't say I didn't want children. I wasn't certain I wanted children. And when you are an artist, you kind of have to make that decision at some point. And, and I just thought, you know, I, I didn't have any money in the period of years where I really had to make that decision. And I was married to another artist and we didn't have family support. So it just said, well, let's just hope this is the right choice, you know, that we're mm-hmm. going to, you know, stay, stay ahead here and do this. I didn't want to blame a kid for my failures, basically. You know, I thought, well, if you're going to fail, you can't blame your kid you know, like, mm-hmm. which, you know, can happen. So, um, or vice versa, you know, um, I didn't want to see a kid, you know, like the Alice Neal movie, but then later I met, you know, the Alice Neal movie where, you know, it's so, it's a documentary about her. Somebody, I know, yes, I mean, so I've many people that. are, yeah, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. 
she sort of ignored her kids didn't she and pursued her art yeah yeah, and the kids were like, you know, scrapping around. But you know, yeah. I met I met the kids because they Zwarner represents the estate. And after the documentary came out, I walked up to um Hartley Neal, he's the doctor, mm-hmm. the radiologist. And I went up to him at this, you know, dinner and I said, Hey, um, you know, Hartley, I'm Lisey Scavage, I show at this gallery. Um he, you know, I don't think he knew my work at the time. We got to know each other much better over time. And so, and that wasn't the point. I said to him, you know, I, I always thought, you know, I was terrified at children because of the, what you guys went through, but in wow. reality, but in reality, you turned out amazing. Alice mm-hmm. did a great job. And he just beamed. And I said, yeah, I mean, he goes, yeah, I guess I actually had a really interesting life. You know, like sometimes, you know, we, we emphasize, one part of the story versus to, to the other side, you know, one could tell the Alice Neal story where it's really like a lot more about what she did. Right. Um, mm. But I think, but I think that, that she did, you know, sure. Everybody's childhood is hard one way or the other. It's hard <laughs> yeah. to be a child because yeah. you're stuck. Uh, that's the worst part of it. You know, it's funny. I'm reading right now Orwell's uh, book. It's a bunch of his short stories facing unpleasant facts, which I've had on my shelf for a long time and uh, I love Orwell's writing just blows me away. And I'm just right now reading a story about um, his time in boarding school. And he writes so beautifully from the point of view of what it's like to be a little kid and be stuck in that environment. And the story is called such, such were the joys. I think that's the one I'm reading now. Um, it's yeah. Yeah. It's called such, such were the joys. And it's about, you know, his time in an English boarding school, as a scholarship student and, you know, the incredible abuses, but how he then also talks about how great it was on the other hand. Um, after all, he became George Orwell. So the yes. story adds up. The story mm-hmm. adds up. So, you know, we, we, we're lucky to, whatever he did, it was correct. And I always, I sort of feel that way for myself. It's like, whatever, whatever path you take is the right one. My education was so uh, grounded in, you know, European uh, painting. And that had not really ever been done, you know, like looking, I my, spent my third year in undergraduate school in Rome and then traveling all around Europe with a Eurail pass. So I went everywhere, saw everything, all every country practically, and went to every museum. And mm-hmm. we, you know, I got home and my mother burned all my clothes, you know, had, I was that kid, the stanky, you know, s- sleeping on trains, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> um, Really, she said, "You, I've never smelled anything like it when I got back." Wow. She, it was, but I, you know, it's it's, it's pretty. Yeah, it was great. We all stunk, so we didn't know. You know, it's just like, but you mm-hmm. kind of like have this amazing adventure where you're sleeping in subway, uh, not in subway cars, but like you know, like in in train stations because you missed your train overnight train. Mm-hmm. But we yeah. went, we yeah, went yeah. crazy. We went crazy. A couple of us, you know, looking at art, and that wasn't a very common thing for American kids to be doing in 82. But when I was able to bring that forward and kind of marry that with my extremely, I realized at one point, something very important. I realized that I had an extremely utterly of the moment point of view. It was not a, a point of view from the past. It was, it was like, maybe I could use the tools of the past, but I had a very, very much of the moment story. Yep that no one had ever said 
are yeah, told, yeah, yeah. which is, and, yeah. and I just, and, and I think that that was my, that was my go. Like when yeah. I was going around looking at art in the nineties and I was trying to find something or the late eighties and the nineties. And I was trying to figure out what, what I wanted my art to look like after that show where I hated the, what I might work look like. I, I went around and I realized I would see aspects of things that I liked but I didn't see the, the object that I liked. And I, it occurred to me, and I do think this is important for young artists to remember, rather than complain that all art that you see out there stinks or it doesn't speak to you, make that object that you want to see. You need to understand what it is that's missing and you make it, that's your job. You make, you fill in the blank. That had never been done. You are that person. So we ask every guest that comes on, Lisa. Uh, we ask them a couple of questions, uh, which go along the lines as of to, you... as opposed to what you were doing before. <laughs> before, yeah, that was just fluff. <laughs> this is the serious stuff. This is what everyone wants to know. If you could do an art heist, uh, touchstone artwork, anything in the world that you could have for yourself, you could steal it and keep it. What would it be and why? I would probably. I, I really love things like. Seurat drawings they seem like little miracles to me um and uh you know or like Degas monoprints I feel like there's so Mm -hmm. much intimacy in these drawn things Mm -hmm. um I know that it isn't isn't a good economic choice I should probably you know steal the you know or like even a Rembrandt etching you know it's like but it's figuration you're going for still like you you your main your figuration always yeah well, I mean, in terms of stealing stuff, sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love a Rembrandt etching. I love, I love a stolen I love, one. Yeah. yeah, I I don't have. Yeah, I look around my house and I see figuration like above my head. Last year, oh, I know, I'll steal a Gustin painting. Okay, that's it. I steal a big juicy Gustin painting any day. Nice. But I was walking into this gallery and they had. Um, uh, it's they had a sign up that said uh, Gustin Lithos, late Gustin Lithos. And I and I made a beeline in there to take a look. And I wandered around and I thought, well, if it's under and it was I had a very low price point. I was like, if it's under this price, I will buy one. And it was exa- I mean, I could win the prices right because it was exactly <laughs> that price. That's the skill. And it was not expensive. It was not expensive because it's multiples and people are afraid to buy. Um, prints, but I am very adept at printmaking and I know a lot about printmaking and I know a lot about Gustin's prints and I know a lot about Gemini and I know who these yeah. people are. So I felt comfortable. And I, w- and then I went up to the desk and I said, if, if that one's available, well, but, and next thing you know, I, you know, bought myself a present. So up above my head is a pile of heads of Gustin's. Oh, and wow. I just love this thing. It's Gustin 1980. So he died, what, like a year later or something? You know, it's incredible. Um, it's called C. C. It's a, it's like a sea of heads. And mm-hmm. one of them is smoking. Yeah, right. He's out at sea and he's drowning, but he's still smoking a cigarette. Um, I look so to my good. left and I see a, a Sumi ink drawing that my husband made of me sitting in a church. Very beautiful black and white drawing. So I'm surrounded by, you know, drawings and paintings of... I am, when I first joined David's Warner Gallery, I was um, very taken by this little tiny Neo Rausch painting, which at the time wasn't very much. And I was like, you know, may I please? And so, you know, I hit him up for a nice discount and everything. And we have a beautiful <laughs> Neo Rausch painting, which we love. Awesome. And mm-hmm. 
also years and years and years and years ago. That's like the the title of your TV show. Years and years, years and years. years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was a show of an artist, a very young artist named Kara Walker, and mm. she had just had that show at the Drawing Center, and mm-hmm. it was the very large cutouts. And of course, I thought, the silhouettes. Well, this is yeah. an, an unmitigated talented person who's doing something strikingly new and original and this is going to be a big this woman's a big deal maybe a year later um brent sycama had a gallery all you know the money left the art world and everybody's gallery closed get ready people it's gonna happen again but brent landed on his feet did a show of kara's in his apartment on lafayette street and i wandered in there and it was a show of little tiny paintings. Um, there were silhouettes glued onto canvas with um, temper paint and sanded. And there was my, and I had just been for years, my best friend was dying of AIDS. His name was Jesse Murray. And I met him at graduate school. He was diagnosed in graduate school. And I was, and I, I made a promise to myself and to him that I would be with him to the end. I'm sorry. You know, it's not a good story to, on top of all the other problems, but I, you know, it is the truth. And I had just lost him and he was a very large, even he, he never got wasting from the, from the AIDS and he never got sarcoma externally. So he always looked beautiful, but he was a very large black man. And I just loved him to death. He was the most erudite man. He was way older than me. He went back to art school after being an art historian and art teacher um he's an amazing artist uh you know didn't get a chance to make much work because he got sick so quickly but he died he was about 45 years old and he died in about five years to work and he um he had just died and i missed him terribly and i went into this little show and i see this painting i never even thought i would be interested in i had no money that's the thing i had no money i didn't pay my i didn't pay my rent that month or something and i i saw this painting it was called leap and it was this little fat black baby that looked like it was thrown off the top of a house and it was falling back in space but the title of the painting was leap so i realized it reminded me so much of jesse's struggle between being a gay man a man with aids a man who was poor, a man who wanted so much to live, but was always dying. He was so optimistic. We couldn't get a cab for him because he was black when he really needed to get to the hospital and he used to hide and I would go get a cab. It was so horrible. The horror, the horror of the reality of people not trusting a man with dark skin. I couldn't tell you how the horror, I was 30 years old and, and, and I, I was dipped very deeply into the horror of the, and by the way, now the rest of the world knows what it's like to be a gay man during the AIDS crisis when everybody is like looking at you askance, like, am I going to catch this from you? Am I going to catch this from you? You know, and the shunning and the horror. Anyway, he was gone and I missed him terribly. And I saw this image and I thought, it's him. He's always leaping, but always falling through, through, through the night. And I just went up to Brent and I said, I don't have any money, but I'd like to buy that. <laughs> he let me buy it. And I took me and that year, I think that was 95. And that year I won a grant and I was able to pay for it. Wow. It took me a year to pay for it. And I think it was like 300 bucks, 400 bucks. And I still have wow. it. And wow. I, I think that, and I, and it's a little tiny black and white. And um, 
it's just you know but it means like these things mean something to me always like they always have you know and and what's interesting is all of these works i'm looking at are black and white my work is full of you know color obviously um but i really um, everything i mentioned was a black and white drawing so yeah, who yeah, the hell yeah, knows? Yeah. That um that leads us on to the next question, which is um we ask every guest, and it's a very simple one, but it's what is your favorite color? Which I'm fascinated to ask you because your work is so, such. You're obsessed. The color, color is the most important thing. Yeah. There is no such thing as a color without another color. Mm. So they think that you know color. You know, if you say to me, you know, uh, my favorite color is you know blue, and I'd say, what, well, what, but which blue? And, you know, say, well, light blue. And I said, well, compared to what? So color is always a comparison. <laughs> one of the yeah. things that I'm planning on doing during this, you know, being holed up is one of my favorite people on earth is a young man. He's 16 years old. His name's Quattro Villarreal. Hope. <laughs> and I've known him since he was, before he was born, he's been, he was inside his mom. Maybe he wouldn't like that I said this, but too bad. Um, but my friend posed for me as a pregnant woman and some of the paintings are called quattro so mm. I, i'm just outing this but we've had a wonderful friendship as he grew up you know he kind of got used to me he calls me anti-ice cream that's a whole other tra- trajectory <laughs> love if you if you want kids to like you just take just say that you're anti-ice cream or uncle ice cream you know it's just because <laughs> then they're and then occasionally you have to actually pony up with the ice cream but mm-hmm. all their friends and their friends of friends and kids you never met went, hey, is that is that that anti ice cream? Because they all wonder, you know, it's like, what's up with the anti ice cream name? <laughs> but anyway, so um, you know, he's stuck in his house and he's finished his schoolwork, and I promised to teach him color mm-hmm. on the uh, whatever some video conferencing, and I've gotten his his mom uh, Yvonne has I got him to get like a little set of gouache which is. C which has a CMYK, which is a red, yellow, blue, and a black and a white, and certain paper. And we're going to go through, and I'm going to give him the only color lesson I know, which is college level color. And I think he's going to get it. So that's a kind of a cute little thing. And you know, maybe we'll record it, and if it's any good, we'll put it out there to everybody else. But it it, it should be interesting because I'm probably going to learn as much with his questions because he's such a smart kid. But you know, it's always kind of special when you can sort of make you know one little contribution and uh hopefully our talk today will have made some contribution one more question what have you discovered is your hidden lockdown talent since we've been in lockdown what have you discovered that you can do which you or something you want to do which you didn't really know i decided to teach myself how to do gouache now i know that doesn't sound like a lot but i've never had the patience with gouache and i'm such a fan of um the 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 gouache paintings of uh, of so many people and and they just they just i i you know I, I'm, I'm a big fan of like when i go to museums and i see an artwork that i like i'm very non-hierarchical i like as, as you can tell, like the artwork that I would steal, like not the most valuable artwork. Um, but I would look at the work. I would love something. And I would look at the label and I would see what, how it was made. And then I'd say, oh, I'm going to learn to do that. So I've taught myself a lot of different um, techniques or mm-hmm. technical stuff over the years. Um, and the one that I just haven't had the patience for is gouache because it just 
hasn't made a lot of sense to me because by the time I started doing it, I was like, well, why don't I just make an oil painting? Because I've taught myself watercolor. I've taught myself pastel. Um, and, you know, mono printing, lithography. I mean, I did take classes at, when I was a student, but, you know, later you have to kind of like brush up. And, you know, this is a real how-to. I just sent away for a book um, on how to do gouache. Mm-hmm. And um, just hoping there's a little, you know, Hail Mary pass in there that, you know, I mean, obviously the book is intended for people who are doing it as, uh, you know, I, as I said, I always wanted to be a Sunday painter. So I guess on Sundays I will dedicate myself to how to do gouache. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I did one and I, and I, and I kept on, kept on at it and it started to get kind of interesting. Um, I don't know. I mean, we'll see, you know, we'll see how it goes. Uh, I did buy a large set of, of gouache on the outside chance that I was forced to make art at my kitchen table. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately I'm able to get to my studio um, and I can, you know, I have a couple of paintings I'm working on, but I was thinking, Oh, well, if I'm stuck at a kitchen table, what would I do? You know, I'm not going to just complain. I'm going to have to figure out something. So I thought, well, this could be good. This could be like my, my gouache moment. I mean, one of the best gouache painters is Magritte. I mean, some of those Magritte paintings, I'm like, mm. I don't, uh, they're so amazing. I mean, he's a, he's mm-hmm. a, an amazing artist. So, you know, mm. I figure if it was good enough for Magritte, I should try to figure it out. <laughs> it's good enough for your scavenge. <laughs> yeah. It's good enough for Magritte. Amazing. It's good enough for your scavenge. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. When I was in high school, my nickname was the Yus. I went to this high school for academically uh, gifted girls. I did, I'm not making that up. Um, trust me. I think me, Rob, Rob, Rob went to one of them schools as well, I think. <laughs> So you could just call me the yes. The yes. The yes. Well, the yes, you have been an absolute joy. My God, this has been an amazing episode. Thank you so much. I really look forward to being together and being able to hug, hug, hug it out. Hug it out, bitches. Yes. Well, on that beautiful note, thank you so much. It's been a joy to speak with you. And for images of all artworks we've discussed today, and maybe even some more, because we're very enthusiastic about Lisa's work, um, visit our Instagram at TalkArt, and we will be back very soon. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Big love, Lisa. Thank you, Lisa. Bye. Thanks, boys. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamant and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at TalkArt, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in this episode. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com